TED Audio Collective. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. You're growing a business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Hello? Hey. I didn't you? recognize you before. I know. <laughs> you had long hair. <laughs> My bad, man. I'm sorry. <laughs> that dude whose hair I failed to recognize is Mario Tuki. And he's calling from Rapa Nui. He, along with Sergio Matao Rapu, are the local collaborators for this episode. Back in 2010, I was working on a Japanese ship called Peace Boat. I was teaching Spanish and English and working as a reporter. And our ship visited Rapa Nui twice. You might know Rapa Nui by its more common name, Easter Island. And I got to be friends with Mario Tuki, who's from Rapa Nui and was on board working as a lecturer and musician. And I was struck by just how long the trip to the island was and how few people lived there. Yeah, it's funny. I, I have such a strong memory of being on the ship, going to Rapa Nui from the ship. Like, it was not the absolute smoothest day on the water yeah and yet you can't pull a ship right up to shore you have to park your ship and then we took little tender boats like yeah, just small small boats at this the side of the boat kind of opens like a mouth and you may or may not remember this but i i actively remember like i was like how many people are here and you were like there's like four thousand. there weren't that yeah. many people on the island at the time and i remember being like wait dude so do you know everybody on the island and you were like Probably. yeah and i was like i was like what about that guy and i pointed on the boat there was a guy who was fishing and you yeah. just yelled to him from the side of the boat you actually knew every single person on the island yeah mostly you have your closer friends but you you know each other you have gone to the same school same classroom yeah we're all related to everyone here the remote island of rapa nui best known for the more than 1,000 huge Moai statues found around the island, visited by at least 120,000 people each year. And now, 10 years after my visit, the world is going through the horrors of the pandemic. We're all having to reimagine new futures. But this island, at the time of this recording, is a safe haven. In March, the island stopped accepting flights and quarantined the five people who were known to be infected with COVID-19. Since then, everyone's recovered and there are no known cases, which is a huge blessing. COVID-19 on an island this size would be a nightmare. But the island's economy was predominantly based on tourism. 
And now, tourism on the island has stopped. So what happens to a tourist paradise when no one shows up to visit? That's where Rapa Nui is now. At the time of this recording, the people on the island are overall healthy, but tourists aren't allowed in. And things may never go back to normal, but they've got to go somewhere. So for thinkers on the island, this is, in a strange way, a sort of opportunity. Before the pandemic, the island wasn't going to turn down tourist money. But now that they're forced to, they have space to imagine an alternative future. So this week, visions for a post-pandemic paradise economy. Shout out to Marriott Hotels for sponsoring this week's episode. A note, the term Rapa Nui is used both to mean the island, its language, and refer to people indigenous to the island itself. As for how that island looks, here's Cristian Moreno Pacarati, the historian of that island. The island is, is quiet. It has colors in high definition all the time, but the colors are are so vivid, right? It, it, it looks like a video game. It looks so unreal at times, the landscapes. Uh, rainbows all the time. Like uh, People come from abroad and they see, oh, look, a rainbow, and, and we see them all the time. It's not a lush place. It's mostly grasslands with a few sections that have forest, but introduced trees mostly. It's beautiful, somewhat sparse, and small. Currently less than 10,000 people living in 63 square miles. And that ship I mentioned? When you travel around Europe, for example, you're in a new port every day. The cities are all crammed really close. But getting to Easter Island from mainland South America, it's not like that. It took our ship six days to get there from Ecuador. It's extremely remote. It's technically part of Chile, but it's at least a five-hour flight from the capital, Santiago, and most of that is just flying over ocean. The only other place you can fly in from is Tahiti, which makes Matavere International Airport the most remote airport in the world. The first commercial airplane arrived at that airport back in 1967, and that was the start of tourism, sort of. At first, it was just a trickle. Ahí estamos. Ahí estamos. Okay, gracias. So, hi, I'm Connie. I'm I'm a German. Yeah, more than 30 years living on Rapanui. When I came first in '87, there was one plane per week, and it was a very small airport. And uh, the young guys on the island, I always say, came to every plane to see <laughs> the girls coming out of the plane. And, and you my, were a girl coming out of the plane? Of course. So my husband was there. Future husband at the time. With all his friends, having a look what's new. I happened to stay at a guest house of one of his aunts, and so he knew where I was. And then the rest is really history. And he had a motorbike, yeah. which was awesome. <laughs> so we, we experienced the island on his motorbike, and uh, he showed me all the places. And then we started our own travel agency. So Connie has been running her company, Rapa Nui Travel, for a long time now, over two decades. But when she first arrived, tourism wasn't anywhere near as big as it is now. 
Okay, back to Christiane, the island historian, who does not have a lot of local competition. People call me the historian on this island because I mm. happen to be the only historian. Uh, it sounds like a big deal, but it's a very small island with less than 10,000 people, so. Christiane grew up in Santiago, Chile, 2,000 miles away, but his mom is Rapa Nui and grew up on the island. And when Christian was a teenager, he had this itch, this need to know his roots. I started longing for the island. This part of me that I had lost because I was not raised on the island. And when he was in college, his family started sending him on trips to the island. I remember the first time I came, uh, it was shocking. And everybody kind of, they, they just saw me in the street, walking alone, just wandering around older Rapanui, which just hmm. stare at me and tell me, you're a Pacarati, right? You, you are, you're from my family or you're my, my nephew. And then I started to get to know the, the extended family and they made me feel so welcome. Everyone was saying, all of this is yours. It, it's your island. And I fell in love with the island. You, you cannot tell whether it's fiction or if it's fact. I felt connected. As he felt more connected to the people, he felt more connected to the land. And just look at the, the Moai, at the Tupuna, the statues that represent our ancestors. I went to the cemetery, I went to the quarries, every single place. It's the place where your ancestors have been. It's not just their bones, it's their experiences. They are all in this tiny little place that's 63 square miles. So what's it like being a teenager on Easter Island? Oh, well, it was so much fun. It was going to the beach. It was uh, swimming, free diving, spear fishing, uh, and then, of course, parties. Pretty big potential distraction for a college student. And it became more and more difficult to return to Santiago. In college, while I was studying history, well, everything I did, all the essays, the articles and the monographs, everything was about uh, Rapa Nui, right? If it was possible, if it was not a course on, on Greek history or Roman history, well, uh, everything else, I just found a way to put Polynesia and Rapa Nui uh, on that. And my professors were really thankful about that because they had no clue about the island. Chilean historians, they don't touch the topic. The relationship between Chile and Rapa Nui is complicated. And to understand our story today, you've got to know a little bit about that relationship. Rapa Nui is legally a Chilean territory. It's also referred to as Isla de Pascua, Easter Island, which is the island's UN-recognized international name. And it's a Chilean tourist destination. But it is very far from Chile. It has its own language, and it has its own distinct history. Back when Mario said that pretty much everyone's family was linked, he wasn't exaggerating. The current Rapa Nui people are descendants of about 100 people who stayed on the island in the 1870s. There were a lot more people living on the island before that, and there's been a lot of discussion as to how the local population got so low. But the explanation we heard the most from people was... External forces almost disintegrated the Rapa Nui people. And that happened in the 1860s. When we have slave uh, raids, then we have epidemics, smallpox, TB, other things that nearly wiped out the entire community of Rapa Nui. These two things combined. And then after that, there's a massive exodus of the few survivors 
towards French Polynesia. They go to live to Mangareva, to Tahiti, to Moorea. So they go there, and only a few brave ones remained here. And, and yeah. well, the current Rapa Nui people, the, the ones that exist mm. today, including me, we all descend from that little core of a bit more, a little bit more than a hundred people. So now it's 10,000. It has, the population has increased a lot. So we have this island, small population, far away, hard to get to, but it's got this thing that makes it super memorable. Like we said, if you have one image in your head when you hear Easter Island, it's giant stone faces, the Moai. Here's Hetareki Huke, a local architect and territorial planner who specializes in how island territories develop. The Rapanui culture and the Polynesian culture has a special relationship with bones and with burials. Ahus and Moais were mostly funerary structures. Ahu is a platform, large rock structures that inside of it has different burials, mainly for kings. And in many Ahus, in the top of it, they have Moais. Moais are big uh, anthropomorphic statues. The tallest one has 21 meters, so they're really huge. And the Ahus, the largest one has 200 meters. So we're, we're talking about really, really big uh, structures that were really, really important in ancient times. The bones and, and, uh, and the burial places are the most um, important, I would say, because in our culture, uh, you conserve mana. Mana is the power you have and the power you inherit and, and the power that you give. Uh, it's in your bones also. So the beauty of the island, the chance to have photos with those iconic statues, it results in a very attractive trip for tourists coming from all over the world. And the tourist numbers were small in the 1980s, but they slowly grew from there. So I don't know, maybe we had 2,000 tourists coming to Rapa Nui. So it started small like that. Uh, but in 2018, for example, tourism has or brought 120,000 people to the island. Uh, for an island that has 10,000 people, to get 120,000 tourists a year, uh, that's, that's a big deal. I would say from the 1967, when the first flight landed with tourists on the island, until the 1990s, Tourism was still competing with other ways of making a living. It was in the 90s that it just took off and uh, it became almost mm. the exclusive. I would say 80% of the economy of Rapa Nui is tourism related or depends on tourism. Some people would say, oh no, we, we, we don't work on tourism. We work on uh, farming, right? Yeah, but that produce goes to the tourism industry. Right. That produce goes to restaurants and hotels. Maybe you're a repairman and the bicycles you fix are mostly tourist bicycles, or a fisherman and tourists eat most of your fish. Nearly all the work on the island is linked to tourism. And in case you didn't catch that number of visitors, that's about 120,000 yearly visitors on an island of less than 10,000 residents. 
that's a lot of people and a lot of cash. But you can't bring that many people to an island without some side effects. There's quantifiable challenges like trash. I spent part of a day on a tour of a landfill there. And there's something incredibly immediate about seeing all of an island's waste in one place. Since plastics aren't produced on the island, a lot of the non-biodegradable waste, the stuff that stays in a landfill forever, comes from imports and things being left behind by tourists. Around the time I visited, the island produced 1.4 metric tons of waste per year. Now, 10 years later, it produces nearly twice that, at 2.5 metric tons a year. And there are intangible effects. Uh, today, the, the community has become very more individualistic. So on one hand, tourism has um, turned the island into an economy of money. Now you don't work to get something, produce something. Now you work to get money. And that money allows you to do things. But on the other hand, there's a social disintegration that comes with that. Even Connie, whose entire business is tourism, is still wrapping her head around all of this. You know, the more you sell, the volume makes it cheaper. This is concerning my business. If an agency sends me, like, per year, a thousand tourists, I give them better prices than someone who sends me 10 tourists per year. Easter Island is more accessible financial-wise and more accessible because of the international connections with the flights. And because of the internet, because we're mm. present all over the world. Yeah, it's interesting. It sounds like there was almost a multiplier effect that like once you have some more planes coming in, then ticket prices drop and you're, mm. you know, once you have three restaurants, then it's, you have more places that people can be going out and more people yeah. want to come and more, more yeah. places to stay. So it just kind of exactly. like- It's like a snowball it. effect. Yeah. Now, the thing is that you kind of lose the perspective. Let's put it this way. Because in the last four or five years, I did really good business. Yeah, yeah, the people working with us really made good money. So we all love money, right? So at some point, I think we should have stopped thinking about making money only. What's the Rapa Nui of your dreams feel like and look like? Everyone having enough money to live, uh, still having tourists, but not destroying the ecological system. When we come back, we'll dive into potential solutions. All the specific ways that people are thinking of keeping this island going, both dependent on tourists and not so dependent on tourists. Here's an ad I've had a hand in creating, working with our sponsor, Marriott Hotels, to tell stories that expand horizons and open minds to new perspectives. As someone who has spent a lot of time traveling, I'm constantly surprised by how travel can make you think in new ways. I used to live in Japan, and before I moved there, I used a lot of irony and sarcasm in conversation, and you know, my friends and I were always making weird pop culture references, and that was a lot of my conversation. 
But then I moved to Japan and I suddenly had very few cultural touchstones, almost no pop culture ones. And my grandmother is Japanese, but I didn't learn the language before moving to Japan. So it would be a long time before my Japanese language skills were anywhere near sharp enough to convey irony and sarcasm. And spending time there and in the Japanese culture in particular, it totally changed my sense of humor. I got really interested in a kind of surreal humor vibe that folks talk about sometimes over there. In Japanese, they use the word shuru for surreal. And on another front, I think I got better at sitting in silence and listening. The experience totally shaped who I am, the way I work and write and what I make. But it also just reminded me about the possibility of personal change and growth we get through immersion within another culture at any age. Marriott Hotels gets the transformative power of travel. With hundreds of hotels that span the globe, they want their properties to be a gateway to exploring what the world has to offer and what you have to offer the world. From resort destinations perfect for relaxation or family getaways to bustling city centers, Marriott Hotels is there to host you wherever and whenever you travel. Check them out at MarriottHotels.com. That's M-A-R-R-I-O-T-T Hotels.com. And let your mind travel. A member of Marriott Bonvoy. How do you yourself think of kind of the benefits that tourism has brought to the island and some of the the challenges that may have come up because of tourism? Hmm. It's always not controlled development versus economic considerations. So if you count the economic situation, obviously people are working in tourism. They have Hmm. an income and they have a considerable income which is a good thing because we can send our children to study, uh, let them go to university because like in the States, it's quite expensive to go to university. So if you want to have a good education, advanced education, good health care, these are important advantages, which money buys. But of course you lose many things when you work 24 seven in high season. Mm. You lose the family connection. You lose what we do on Sundays, going to Hanga Ho'onu. Uh, and um, my, my husband, my son, and my grandson go fishing or diving. And we are sitting and, you know, talking the day away. In high mm. season, we can't do that. And so many people on the streets in high season when the tourists are here. It's not their island anymore. Right now, I'm going three times a week, hiking two, three hours, starting at four o'clock with a group of friends. I never, ever could have done that when I was still working, when there were tourists. Are you happier now? It's a weird question because I know there's economic, <laughs> the economic side as well. I'm just, but you, you, the way you're describing it is, it just sounds really nice. I'm, I'm feeling quite happy because I'm more connected to my family. Um, after oh, the first month, 15th of March, uh, and the first month of um, pandemic, 
yeah. with uh, people with the virus on the island, which was a big concern, obviously. Yeah. Uh, I couldn't sleep anymore because I had employees and uh, I had to figure out how to to help them get over it. So what happens now? Now is this involuntary experiment. The tourists are gone, but can everyone just live off the land? Winding the clock to an earlier time sounds idyllic, but could that even work? Back to Hetereki, our territorial planner. I think that the question is how can we go back in what we miss without losing what we have gained? Yeah. That, that is a difficult question. How we can get smaller and more familiar, but conserving, I don't know, health, incomes, education. Yeah, people aren't just thinking, how do we get our GDP back up? Though they do need money. All of these ideas affect all aspects of life. So up first, subsistence farming, because before tourism, it sounds like people were living off of fishing and farming. Is that right? Yeah, subsistence, basically. You produced enough to for for your family, extended family, right? And uh, that was it. And you could trade with other people. Maybe you didn't produce banana and you produced taro. So was everybody kind of, a, everybody was kind of a farmer? Or at least within the family, there were a few specialists yeah. that, that were into that. And then other people would do other things, right? Fixing things at, at home in your house, right? Uh, collecting rainwater. Most of the water was collected from the roofs, right? So until tourism, everything was just that. It was uh, subsistence. I was a spearfisher. I'm returning just now. Used to be very good at free diving. I'm a little bit rusty, but the, well, holding my breath is getting better after three, four times we've been out there. I was curious about that skill gap of like 30 years of not doing this, like whether y'all would have the yeah. skills to do all this. Yeah. It sounds like you're, you either have them or you're redeveloping them. And would you be able to live off agriculture? What happens if the tourism doesn't return for a while? Well, we would be able to subsist. Food would mm. not be an issue. We, we could eat. Of course, the standard of living, the civilization, or, or, or what we know as civilization. I don't know, what happens if your, if your cell phone dies? Well, your communications would be compromised. Okay, so just living off of farming and fishing, that's fun in theory, but it would be tough. We have a household garden in North Carolina, and just getting some vegetables out of it is a lot of work. And to be honest, I'm not the family member putting in real work in the garden, so I kind of don't even know. So I asked Mario about the workload, and he said, yeah, people weren't farming a lot before tourism stopped. And it takes a while for your body to get back in farming shape. I mean, just a few months of quarantine inactivity has turned me into a weak, soggy noodle of a human being. If someone was like, hey, Salim, be a farmer tomorrow, that would be a challenge. And Hetereki and I, we're on the same page. You know, I don't fish. I'm not really good at. <laughs> I love the land. I love to spend time planting, but I still don't have a single tomato. 
So <laughs> I, I'm really relying on my friends. I'm really relying on my friends. Okay, so Hetereki is like me. We would both need some help if life were to go pure subsistence farming. We, we just don't know how to farm. But here's the thing. Mario actually told me that maybe it wasn't ever true that everyone was entirely dependent on subsistence farming for themselves. You actually likely did a mix of things, and your family and friends also did a mix of things. People on the island having super specialized careers where they get their income from just doing one thing, like farming or even just serving tourists, well, that's new. The Rapanui people in general for centuries, for millenniums, they have this hybrid lifestyle. By practice, they become uh, desiccated in certain area, and that gives you the name, oh, you are a fisherman, but that fisherman also grow, also do a lot of other activities. That's a particularity of living in this island. So other people have mentioned that as well, that like, for years, Rapa Nui and now often do more than one thing. That has been a constant through history. Mm. But since uh, the annexion with the Western world, all this concept or reflections has been left aside and we started to think in a Western way, like more specialized. No, you dedicate to tourism, you dedicate to tourism, and that's it. But it's not really, in my opinion, a Rapa Nui thing to live that way. Yeah, pre-capitalism on an island like this, he's saying that to get by, you kind of had to be a little good at a lot of things. And many people could farm a bit. Okay. So idea one is shifted a little subsistence farming with a hybrid of other skills. Next up, the opposite of building out a hybrid skill set, specialization. But just not focusing on tourism. Right now, there's people who are farming and very much thinking about turning it into a real business. And for that, you got to make more than you need. A lot more. Here's Christian. We've always been talking about how to make the island more independent, how to make it more autonomous, mm, yeah. how, how to be able to, to not depend so much from uh, Chile. And now in terms of money, at least, we depend 100% of Chile. So we depend more than ever before from uh, on the state, on the, on the Chilean government right now. How to uh, break that trend or how to, it would be possible if the island started exporting stuff. Yeah. Important note, there's not really much of an export market happening at all right now. Exporting stuff from this island was unthinkable because it's too expensive to send things hmm. abroad. So it wouldn't be competitive hmm. with, with anything else. Yeah, but I always say just, the, for, uh, just by the fact that whatever, sweet potato, James Cook, um, he said hmm. it was the best sweet potato in the Pacific so wouldn't that be a huge punchline for uh, exporting sweet potato from here and having a moai in the, uh, on the label, right? The moai is the people are using the moai image, people that have absolutely no right to use that. It's true. Those moai images are used all over, highly recognizable. There's even an emoji you can text a friend with your phone right now. But... Christian says they aren't used much in product marketing by the islanders. Enter Cecilia Araki, a farmer who runs Kumapora, a sweet potato chip company. 
No hay muchas otras opciones para chips. Kumakura um, means fried sweet potato chips. The idea starts with the fact that the farm needs a way to financially sustain itself because farming can be expensive in the sense is that, you know, you always need to fix a broken fence or you always need, you know, new tractor tires. And so the farm does produce and the prime materials that we get off the farm, we can sell it to town. Obviously during tourism, you sell a lot of it to the restaurants, the hotels specifically. And so you earn more money by uh, quantity or a lot of product that you sell to those locations. I definitely see this time as a moment where exporting is going to be where our company kind of grows. And it's actually something that's always been on my mind. And we actually do send chips um, to locations in Santiago of Chile. With everything that's happening now, um, we see that the e-commerce world or the delivery world is going to become the way that everything's going. And so exporting for us will be ideal to be able to keep the economy moving Because we not only plant the sweet potatoes ourselves, but we also actually do buy sweet potatoes from other farmers because we can't plant for the quantity that we need, um, which kind of keep, keeps the circular economy moving, allowing our product to get off the island so that outside people can reach it will maybe allow them to have that taste or sense of um, local agriculture. And during this time period, we have two more distributors that, have, that we've started to talk to, to send um, to Chile. I mean, logistically, we're kind of, we're tied when it comes to the planes um, and the boats. If we are able to get a large quantity or volume of chips right, at a pre-ordered or bought, then we could even, you know, we could send them by boat, which would reduce the cost. It would take a little bit longer, but it would reduce the cost. And then there, that would just be a little bit of logistic work to get it to where it needs to go. So clearly, Cecilia is thinking about what to do with the surplus. So yeah, idea number two, exporting all the surplus that people grow. And sweet potatoes aren't the only thing Rapa Nui could export. Almost everyone we talked to had an idea of what else they could be exporting. I am completely unbiased, trust me, but this is the best pineapple in the world. Rapa Nui tuna fish is extremely famous. Taro. Um, the, um, it's, not, it's not really lobsters, you know, it's a cousin of the lobster without claws. I don't know what the, the uh, English name is. Our music is in the digital platforms. Yeah, you can even figure out a way to export culture. So exporting would solve two issues at once. One, less dependence on Chile. And two, more relevant to the issue at hand, they'd be less dependent on tourism as a source of income. Here's Ariti Teave, an activist on the island who feels like with the right exports, Rapa Nui could become a totally separate country from Chile. We start searching for a product that could generate an economy for the island. What did you find? So we've been three, four years researching, and we finished now on coffee. Huh, coffee. I haven't heard anyone talk about coffee yet. It's not good coffee. It's supreme Arabic coffee. Hmm. So that is a potential economy for the island. Coffee will be superior the revenue than the revenue of the park today. When Riti says the park, 
she's talking about the island's main tourist attraction, which is home to many of the archaeological sites and structures. And it turns out Ariti is not alone. Even the former governor of Rapa Nui, Sergio Rapuhawa, who is not trying to imagine an entirely separate existence from Chile, has also been thinking about coffee. Full disclosure, this is our co-producer, Sergio's dad. Chile import coffee from Brazil and from other places, but we can produce special coffee, you know, gourmet coffee. Gourmet coffee, pineapples, music. I want all these things. But again, not totally easy. Let's take a moment to review. So far, we have two options. Option one, hybrid farming lifestyle and intentionally depending less on tourists. Option two, exporting goods to the rest of the world. And in a lot of the conversations we had, a slightly ethereal third option came up. And it's changing the kinds of people who visit the island, or maybe better put, the intention of the people who are coming to the island. Then we have to have visitors who respect us. Not only we respecting our visitors, they have to respect us. Remember how I said tourism brought a bunch of its own issues with it? It's almost like it threw off the balance of the island. And I mean that in every sense, the environment, where they spent their time, how they interacted with their visitors. So I think there has to be the possibility to get a balance between the economic needs, the ecology, and to respect each other. And nobody knows when flights are going to start up again. But Cecilia has heard that... When they did start up, they were going to start with one flight a week, which meant that that tourist that came in would have to at least stay for a week, which kind of changes touristic um, mindset because typically it was a very go, go, go mindset. I mean, that may not last for a long time because in the end, you know, the big business people that kind of run the show are the ones that are going to start, you know, pressuring for more tickets to be sold and... And that's a whole other issue. One of those business people is the same Connie we've been speaking with. In addition to running Rapa Nui Travel with her husband, she also sits on the Chamber of Commerce. Is there a part of you that thinks that maybe this, this what you'd guess is a two-year thing, will make people less likely to kind of maximize money? That's exactly what I'm wondering. Because mm. while you're making money, you don't even, even have time for reflection. You don't even have time to say... Do I want to make It's like you have, I don't know, 50 clients. And you can't say, you know, don't send me so many tourists. Send me a little bit less. Of course you don't do that, right? It's your reputation as a businesswoman. Hmm. I can relate. I know a lot of people who want to opt out of the rat race. And it sounds great. And it's easy to think that about other people in the abstract. This faraway island, it should totally slow down. But it's really hard for people to actually opt out. I mean, literally as I'm saying this, I'm stressed because I've promised to do too many things this week. I don't know why Connie's not slowing down, and I don't know why I'm not slowing down either. The interesting thing about what Connie brought up is that no matter what Rapa Nui does next, it's still gonna have to deal with this at some point. Like, when is enough enough? But Christian, he has an executable idea. We could just schedule breaks. Well, then let's implement the week without tourists every year, like one week. 
hmm. the, the entrepreneurs will not be happy, but <laughs> yeah, uh, it's just one week, right? The rest of the time they can just continue to earn their their money. Just like I could theoretically take a phone-free vacation to clear my head, the Rapa Nui could have a one-week staycation without having to share the island with the rest of the world. Basically, this moment that they're in, where they've all been forced to slow down, they could schedule that one week every year, forever. Okay, so a lot of options. Subsistence farming, exports, changing the kinds of visitors, just all agreeing to do less, or block off some time free of tourism. Is it any of these? Or some combination of some or all of them? We could try to leave you with an answer, but listeners, we love you, and faking an answer would be fake. It's 2020, I am confused, and I have no idea what anyone should do. I am deeply fascinated by all these possible futures. Back in 2010, I wrote about how Rapa Nui was a microcosm for environmental issues. But now it's clear that it's actually a microcosm for so many things we're grappling with as a global society in 2020, including growth, the pandemic, tourism, the effects of capitalism, how we relate to one another. But for now, it's going to have to stay a bit uncertain. Here's a few words of wisdom from Hetereki. I'm not really astrological or something like that, but this is the year of the rat in the Chinese zodiac, okay? Yeah. And the year of the rat is the beginning of a cycle. It's the first animal in their zodiac. But it's also the year of the big changes. It's the year where you plan ahead important things, where you plan your future, uh, how you want to live, what you want to change. We need to plan what we want, how we want to be, and how we want to live. So, shout out to Rapa Nui, where, by choice or not, they are moving into the chaos of 2020, full of ideas. And here's some music from Mario for our outro. Far Flung with Salim Rushamwala is produced by Jesse Baker and Eric Newsom of Magnificent Noise for Ted. Our production staff includes Huete Gitana, Sabrina Farhi, Kim Naderfin Peterson, Elise Blenner-Hassan, Angela Chang, and Michelle Quint, with the guidance of Roxanne Highlash and Colin Helms. Our fact checker is Abby White. Ad stories are produced by Transmitter Media. Very special thanks to Mario Tuki and his band, Amahiro. And Mario, apologies for not recognizing you with your long hair. It's been a year of great change, my friend. Thank you also to Sergio Matau Rapu for sharing his wisdom about the island and connecting us to everyone you heard in today's episode. This episode was mixed and sound designed by Kristen Muller. Our executive producer is Eric Newsom. Special thanks to our sponsors, Marriott Hotels and Women Will, a Grow With Google program. I'm Salim Reshamwala. 